In Matthew 24, Jesus gives his disciples a profound, detailed description of what will happen during the end times before his return. You might call them foreshadows. As you and I strive to follow his command to keep watch, how can we know that we're drawing nearer to that day? Get practical answers when you join us next. This is The Land and the Book with Charlie Dyer, and I'm John Geiger. Always glad to connect with you, Charlie. Looking forward to a great program. John, it's always fun to be with you, so thanks. I'm looking forward to it as well. Hey, did you know that most Jewish people have never heard the gospel? It's true. Each week, you and I talk about Israel and the Jewish people, but it's important to remember that they, like everybody else, need to hear the good news. That's right, John. Life in Messiah, a ministry in existence for over 130 years, is devoted to sharing the gospel with Jewish people around the world. We've interviewed several Life in Messiah staff on our show, and we've enjoyed hearing what God is doing around the world through them. Well, now Life in Messiah is offering a free gift to Moody listeners. It's a resource called Reaching Jewish People for Messiah. Receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org Click on the Moody Radio logo and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook, which highlights the need for the gospel among the Jewish people and will equip you with practical ways to share the good news with them. And thank you for that good word, Charlie. Let's dig into this week's current events. Turkish President Erdogan continues to confound the West. After years of supporting Hamas, criticizing the U.S. for its alliance with the Kurds and cozying up to Russia and Iran, Erdogan now seems to be trying to rebuild relations with Israel, of all nations, and the U.S., while selling drones to Ukraine to use against Russia. Help us understand his overall strategy, assuming he has one. Well, Erdogan's overall strategy is to rebuild the Ottoman Empire, to make Turkey the dominant player in the Middle East. Every decision he makes is designed to help Turkey reach that goal. When Russia was on the rise, especially after saving Syrian President Assad, From almost certain defeat from ISIS, Erdogan appeared to cozy up to Russia. He bought the Russian S-400 missile system over the objection of his NATO allies. But then, as he said, he also sold Turkish drones to Ukraine. He came out against Finland and Sweden joining NATO, uh, apparently to pressure both countries to stop supporting the Kurds. Now, if they agree to his demands, then he'll likely support their entry into NATO. He's courting the U.S. right now because Turkey needs to purchase new F-16 fighter jets, and the sale of those jets has been blocked, in part, because of Turkish threats against Greece and Cyprus. And yet, at the same time, he continues to slam the U.S. for not imposing sanctions on companies doing business with the Kurds. His current charm offensive for Israel is part of a plan to drive a wedge between Israel, Greece, and Cyprus, who currently share a common interest in the gas and oil deposits in the eastern Mediterranean. Now, to understand all these rapid-fire policy changes, think of a sailing ship crossing the sea. When the wind is from behind, the ship can sail on its true course. But when the wind is contrary, the ship needs to tack back and forth into the wind to make progress. It might appear to be constantly changing course, but watch its overall progress to see where that ship's heading. And right now, Turkey's foreign policy is uh, a ship of state running into some headwinds, but he's still always heading in that same direction. Well, Israel and Iran continue their so-called war between the wars. What's the latest on their ongoing conflict, Charlie? You know, it's like Turkey. Iran's goals haven't changed. They want to destroy Israel. They want to rebuild the Persian Empire. That is a Shiite Islamic Persian Empire to dominate the Middle East. 
Now, the nuclear agreement that's being uh, bandied about is part of their overall plan. They need the agreement to free up their economy, but they're doing everything possible to drive a hard bargain with the West because they believe the U.S. and the West desperately want an agreement and as a result will bend the most to reach it. In the meantime, they've continued their nuclear research and uh, they're looking to build nuclear weapons. They've developed and are installing advanced centrifuges to give them the ability to achieve that nuclear breakout in a matter of weeks. And they've been pushing to have the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps delisted as a terrorist organization. Well, that would free that group up to continue exporting terrorism abroad. Israel has been trying to slow down or stop the nuclear agreement and to keep the Revolutionary Guard listed as a foreign terrorist organization. Israel recently was able to interrogate one of Iran's operatives and got him to admit on tape that he'd been assigned to assassinate an Israeli diplomat in Turkey, a journalist in France, and even a senior U.S. general in Germany that he was trying to kill. Iran's trying to downplay that video, but it shows they haven't changed their ways. Uh, The Revolutionary Guard colonel responsible for planning those attacks was assassinated in Tehran last Sunday, Hmm. and Iran blamed Israel for that attack. Uh, Reports also surfaced last week of Iran arming Hezbollah with long-range cruise missiles that have a range of over 650 miles. Now, that's far beyond what's needed to attack Israel, but it could allow them to attack U.S. bases in Crete and Turkey, as well as other targets like the Suez Canal. It could be Iran's way of threatening both the U.S. and Egypt with retaliatory strikes should they interfere with Iran's plans for the region. Now, they've used other proxies like the Houthis to launch similar attacks against Saudi Arabia. The message to all these nations is that Iran can strike military bases and economic targets should someone oppose them. Now, Israel takes all those threats seriously, which is why they work so hard to degrade Iran's forces in Syria. What we need to hope is that other nations in the region also wake up to the very real threat posed by Iran. If you're joining us midstream, this is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio, coming to you courtesy of this station. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, a noted Middle East scholar, and I'm John Geiger along for the ride as we work our way through a list of stories unfolding right now in the Middle East. Well, the Sea of Galilee uh, came within 10 inches of being completely filled this past winter. And though the level has now begun its gradual drop for the summer, of course, Israel is actually working on a plan, I'm told, to keep the lake full. Now, how do they plan to accomplish that, Charlie? Well, their idea is to pump excess water from their desalination plants into the Sea of Galilee. They currently have five desalination plants in operation along the coast and another two in different stages of construction. Uh, Some of the plants currently in operation aren't running at full capacity. Israel believes it can use that excess capacity to fill the lake. They're currently investing $300 million to upgrade their national water carrier. Instead of just delivering water from the Sea of Galilee, the upgraded system will allow water from these plants to be pumped to the sea. Uh, The project's scheduled actually to be completed by the end of the year. Now, projects like this also come with their share of critics. And the main objection is that the desalination plants are powered by electricity from Israel's coal and gas-fired power plants, leading to charges that the desalination process contributes to global warming. Israel's response is that water is crucial to the region, and the energy to produce it has to come from the power plants, at least right now. However, last year, Israel, Jordan, and the United Arab Emirates agreed in principle on a plan for Jordan to supply solar power to Israel in exchange for Israel providing additional water to Jordan. 
So long term, there are plans in place to replace the electricity from these generators with solar power. Now, in another year, visitors to the Sea of Galilee might look out on a lake that will be full year-round, providing the country with a dependable water backup should a desalination plant ever have to go offline. And John, that would be a beautiful sight to always see the Sea of Galilee full. Charlie, am I understanding you correctly that the the big bottom line, the payoff for doing all of this, is simply having an insurance plan should there be you know a terrible drought? I think that's exactly it. They're not they're not emphasizing that, but obviously those desalination plants are tempting targets for Iran, for Hezbollah, for Hamas. Israel wants to make sure that if anything would ever happen to one of those plants, a natural disaster or an attack, uh, that they wouldn't be without water. And and uh, certainly they're thinking ahead in that sense. And that's a wise defense on their part. Well, thermometers have been an indispensable part of medicine since the mid-1800s. Now, however, an Israeli company called OmniSense is upgrading the thermometer to become a remote health tracking device. Tell us about this latest innovation from Amazing Israel. Yeah, John, thermometers have been a must-have device in virtually every home. And the technology has come a long way since those old mercury-filled glass tubes of years past. But Israeli company OmniSense is taking the idea of a thermometer to a whole new level. With their new system, a patient places the device in his or her mouth for 30 seconds. During that time, the device measures body temperature, obviously, but it also measures respiratory rate and pulse rate, as well as performing an electrocardiogram and measuring the individual's blood oxygen level. And it does all this by incorporating a microphone, a pulse oximeter, and an electrocardiograph into the device. An algorithm analyzes all the data, including any respiratory crackles or wheezing picked up by the microphone, and that's then sent to a smartphone app and onto the cloud where it can be viewed by the patient's physician. Now, the goal of the company is to produce a device simple to use, like a thermometer, but which can also provide real-time data to doctors involved in telehealth visits. It's currently undergoing trials in Israel, and they expect to receive FDA approval in about a year. Now, soon you might have that one simple device in your medicine cabinet, that could provide doctors with real-time information on all of these uh, items. And it's, it's going to be as simple to use as placing and holding a thermometer in your mouth. And when that day arrives, we need to thank some very creative scientists and engineers from Amazing Israel. Thanks, Charlie, for that update on the Middle East. I'm looking forward to our conversation coming up about foreshadows, what you and I need to know about Jesus' command to keep watch. That's ahead on The Land and the Book. In Matthew 24, Jesus gives his disciples a profound, detailed description of what will happen during the end times prior to his return. You might call them foreshadows. As we strive to follow his command to keep watch, how can we know that we're drawing nearer to that day? Get practical answers just ahead on The Land and the Book. Hey, welcome to Segment 2. I'm John Geiger, and I want you to think with me just for a moment about creative ways that we can reach out to our Jewish friends and neighbors with a Christ-honoring witness. So you have built a relationship with a Jewish friend, and you're wondering, you'd like to share Yeshua. Is that different, more intense, more difficult than witnessing to a non-Jewish friend? Let's ask an expert, Beth Tavlin, on the administrative staff at Olive Tree Congregation in suburban Chicago. What's your experience, your thoughts, Beth? I would say that 
It's not any different than sharing with a non-Jewish person. I think we tend to think about a cultural discrepancy between us and another person, and it tends to discourage us or intimidate us. Mm -hmm. And I would say, don't be afraid, and maybe even don't even think about if they're Jewish or not. Just think about them as a person. Right. And what do they need? They need to know the Lord. So as I listen to you, Beth, what I think I'm hearing you saying is there's no need for sweaty palms, no need to get uptight, but there is a need to commit this thing to prayer and invite Jesus into this conversation if it's about him, right? Right. He wants us to be obedient, and he will help us be obedient, and we need to invite him into the process. Praying in the midst of sharing is very valuable. He's not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. Appreciate your giving us some thoughts there, Beth. She's with Olive Tree Congregation in suburban Chicago. More to come here on The Land and the Book. A longtime editor of Bible Prophecy Resources and the author of several books, Steve Miller has spent four decades at the highest levels of the Christian publishing industry. With his wife, Becky, who is also the co-author of 101 Awesome Bible Puzzles for Kids, Steve and Becky reside in Oregon's Willamette Valley. And this is such a timely subject, Steve, and we're really honored to have you with us today on The Land and the Book. Welcome. Uh, Thank you so much for inviting me to be with you and your listeners. It's a privilege to be here. Steve, we, of course, are not the first generation to think and hope that Christ will likely return in our time. But what's fundamentally different about our generation? Well, you're correct. We are not the first generation that thought maybe Christ would come soon. There have been previous generations, like, for example, during World War II, a lot of people thought, oh, Christ surely has to be around the corner, but that wasn't the case. There's two big differences this time around. The first one is what we call the Great Convergence. Many of the things that are described in the Bible that will happen in the end times are casting their shadows into our day. And what's remarkable is how many of these indicators are appearing on the horizon. There's a large number of them. We're not talking just about a few, but many. And the shadows are getting bigger and darker, and we're seeing a lot of stage setting take place. More and more of the events that are supposed to happen in the tribulation, we're getting indicators that they're on the horizon. And the second thing is the rebirth of Israel, which a lot of prophecy teachers call the super sign of the end times. Almost all of the prophecies about the end times require that there be a nation of Israel in place, Jerusalem, a temple on the Temple Mount. If those weren't in place, then prophecy cannot happen. And when Israel was reborn in 1948, all of a sudden the stage was put into place for end times prophecy to be able to take place. That's never happened before, and that's a clear sign that God is in control. He's orchestrating history toward the end that he has decided for it. You know, I find it fascinating that even as America becomes more secular, even pagan, there still seems to be almost coded into our DNA, the notion of judgment, or at least some notion of the end of the world. How do you account for that? I think coded into our DNA is a great way of putting it. And uh, a lot of this has to do with the fact that we are made in God's image. And we see this happen with Adam and Eve in the garden. It's interesting that when they ate the forbidden fruit, the first response they had was guilt and shame. No one had to tell them that they had something wrong. They intuitively knew it. It was built in their system. It was an intuitive thing. And we see in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 how ungodly people will intentionally suppress the truth. Well, why do they intentionally suppress the truth? It's because they know that it's true, 
and they want to hide it. They want to ignore it. They want to push it aside. So yes, there is a sense that we are coded with the DNA that tells us that when we do wrong, when we sin, judgment is coming. He's a longtime editor of Bible Prophecy Resources, the author of several books. Steve Miller joins us today on The Land and the Book for a conversation about foreshadows. Well, let's talk about the role of increasing technology and interconnectedness. How do they foreshadow what we know about Christ's return? Well, technology is the one thing that is tying everybody together in the world more than anything else right now. Our computers, our iPhones, the Internet, all of that interlinks all of us together. And what's happening is we're becoming more and more interconnected, and as we do so, there's a sense in which we're becoming a true global community. We're connected because of technology. One way of looking at it is to look at these networks that span the whole world as sort of like a spider web that we're all, in a sense, trapped in, a web that we can't escape. Mm. And this web of technology is what will make it easier for the Antichrist to control the entire world. In what ways would you say behemoth global companies uh, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, how are they moving us closer to a one-world society? Well, these really big companies, they're what are called metanationals. In other words, the products that they create and the policies that they use, the policies that they impose upon us through their products, transcend borders. They're stateless. And so there's a sense in which these companies, because they're stateless, because they transcend borders, because they shape the way we live, they're more powerful than governments themselves. So they have world-shaping power. And uh, because these companies are stateless, what's happening is we are all developing a mentality that we are a stateless people. We view ourselves as stateless. We view ourselves as more of a global society because we're connected we have so many common denominators because of these companies and not because of our governments. Hmm. All right, then how would you say organizations like the United Nations and uh, G20 factor into setting the stage for prophetic events? Well, what's interesting is many of these huge organizations, these uh, global organizations like World Economic Forum, G20, United Nations, they all have one common denominator. All of them got started because they said, look, there are global problems that require global solutions. There are problems that are affecting the whole globe. How do we solve them? That's what these organizations exist for. And the implication is that global problems need global solutions. Therefore, we need some kind of global way of enforcing those solutions. Hmm. We need to, uh, in a sense, set governments aside, and we need to create a new system of governance. We need to set a way of uh, making things happen on a global scale. That's what they uh, set out to do. That's what their uh, uh, suggested solution is to problems like COVID-19. COVID-19 was faced by everyone, and uh, there was a very scattershot, splintered response by the governments of the world. But these big organizations like World Economic Forum and the United Nations, they're saying, hey, let's work together. Let's do all this as one. Our guest today on The Land and the Book is Steve Miller a serious student of prophecy, and the author of Foreshadows from Harvest House. Okay, let's talk about social control. What do we mean by social control, and how does social control foreshadow prophetic events to come? Okay, well, social control basically means to create rules and standards 
that keep people in line with cultural expectations. And the way social control works is that you shame or you ridicule or you exclude anyone who does not act according to the expected norms. So, for example, a government will use social control to keep its subjects in line. Uh, we have what we call cancel culture today. Cancel culture, the attempt there is to keep people in line, to get them to go with a prevailing worldview or prevailing way of thinking. And all of this is done to pressure people toward conformity. And how this fits in with Bible prophecy is that the Antichrist himself will be a master of social control. Hmm. He will be demanding absolute conformity from everybody. Okay. What about COVID itself? You referenced that a moment ago. What did we learn from COVID about expanding governmental control? What was interesting about COVID is that it spread so quickly and the crisis was so severe and people were so scared that all of a sudden what was happening was there was a universal response worldwide. People were crying out to their governments, we need help, we need solutions, we need to get past this. But what happened was worldwide, all these different governments were responding in different ways. They came up with different solutions. But eventually what started happening was the governments began to rely on major organizations like the uh, World Health Organization or like uh, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC. And there were a few people high up in health organizations that were starting to make the rules for how we should respond to COVID. So mm -hmm. governments were, in a sense, giving a transfer of power over to a few people who decided this is the way we should handle COVID. So what was happening was an emergency necessitated a fast response. But in making that fast response, governments put power into the hands of fewer people. And those people were given the uh, right to dictate how the whole world respond to the pandemic. And basically what's happening is that that sets a pattern for the future where when a major global crisis hits, governments all turn to a few individuals who decide this is how we're going to handle it. And that in turn pushes us more and more toward a global society, the kind of global society the Antichrist will have. So in other words, you're saying that COVID essentially has softened us to the notion of a very few people having enormous global control. Would that be a fair assessment? Yes. That's exact, uh, exactly right. Um, basically, it's not so much, I do not see it as COVID was any kind of a conspiracy. There are a lot of people that say it was a conspiracy. Right. Um, that's debatable. But I think the important thing is, regardless of whether a crisis is intentional or not, the fact is that the crisis is something that governments use as an opportunity to increase their powers. Mm -hmm. Today on The Land and the Book, we're honored to have with us Steve Miller, who's written Foreshadows, major trends that point toward the Earth's final days. What are the dangers of today's surveillance technology? Well, in order for the world to have one future ruler, and in this case, from the Bible, we know that that future ruler will be the Antichrist, in order for the Antichrist to be able to exercise total control over everyone on Earth, he has to have some way, some vehicle of making that control happen. And it appears, based on what we're seeing now, is that two key ways that that kind of control can happen are the surveillance technology that we see in countries like China, where there's cameras everywhere, and because people are fearful of what the cameras might catch on them, these cameras, in a sense, modify our behavior. They force us to behave. 
And the other thing is the Internet. In China and Russia, the governments control the kind of content that people can see on the Internet because they want to control the way people think. So the way we act can be controlled by surveillance cameras. The way we think can be controlled by whoever controls the Internet. And that kind of control takes us into a digital type of dictatorship. It dictatorships into a world we've never had before. Uh, technology is the very tool that can force widespread assimilation of everybody, which is what the Antichrist needs. Time for just one more question, and uh, it's an important one. How should Christians respond to all of this? I mean, uh, we're sometimes intimidated, sometimes frightened by these foreshadows, as you call them. What do we do with our fears, Steve? Here's what I would say. Anytime we think about the horrors of the end times, we need to look beyond that to all the wonderful things that God has promised will take place after the end times. Christ will return. He will set up his kingdom on earth. He will rule with righteousness, justice, and peace. We will live in his presence. And after the millennial kingdom, there will come a new heaven and a new earth, and we will dwell with God for all eternity. Many of the prophecies of the end times point not just to the scary times ahead, but to the great future beyond that. And we need to keep our eyes on the finish line. We need to look up with hope and not be distracted by what's going on around us. There are great promises ahead that God has given to us for our lives, and that's why we can live with hope. Well, our time is gone, and there's so much to explore. That's why we encourage you to check out Steve Miller's book, Foreshadows, from Harvest House. I'm John Geiger saying thanks for this segment, and do come back as we, on the other side of this break, bring you a fresh set of Bible questions with our host, Charlie Dyer, here on The Land and the Book. The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger with our host, Charlie Dyer. So far, we've been brought up to date on current events, had a stimulating conversation with a Middle East guest, and now, well, it's questions. Maybe yours is one of them. Our email address is always open. I'll share that after I ask this question. Did you know that most Jewish people have never heard the gospel? Each week, we talk about Israel and the Jewish people, and it's important to remember that they, like everyone else, need to hear the good news. That's right, John. Life and Messiah, a ministry in existence for over 130 years, is devoted to sharing the gospel with Jewish people around the world. We've interviewed several Life and Messiah staff in our show, and we've enjoyed hearing what God is doing around the world through them. Now, Life and Messiah is offering a free gift to Moody listeners. It's a resource called Reaching Jewish People for Messiah. Receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook, which highlights the need for the gospel among the Jewish people, and it will equip you with practical ways to share the good news with them. Okay, a stack of questions have come in, Charlie, and you can get your question to us via email at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. We'll start with Derek, who listens to us in McGregor, Texas. He says, I'm currently researching Jeremiah 23, verse 8, where God promised to bring the northern tribes, as I read it, back to their homeland. Since God promised that this return would eclipse the Exodus, there can be no historical fulfillment. So the conversion intimated by Paul and recorded in Romans 11 can't be the context because heaven would be the destination. 
Here's the question. Do you interpret that the so-called lost tribes will muster and return to Israel? Yeah, and the answer, I'll start this way. There is no lost tribes. The People may have lost their identity, but we know after the fall of the northern kingdom, elements from all the tribes from the northern kingdom came to the southern kingdom of Judah. Even during the time of Jesus, uh, the prophetess Anna was from the tribe of Asher, which was one of the northern kingdoms. So uh, the Jewish people that we know today include elements from all the tribes of Israel. They may not know their tribal identity, at least most don't but God does. The Jeremiah 23 passage, along with other passages in Jeremiah, do picture God ultimately restoring a remnant from what was the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And it says it'll be physically to the land and spiritually to the Lord. I take the land to be literal and the spiritual restoration to be real as well. And I think both of them are going to take place at the second coming of Jesus. And that's when he sets up his earthly kingdom. Rose takes us to Joshua chapter 8 after the Achan and Ai defeat. She says, I see God uh, suggesting that Israel may take plunder and cattle. Was this coincidental to the event prior or an intentional act of grace or something else? Yeah, and actually God hadn't told Israel to destroy all the cities in the land or all of the uh, cattle in the land. Uh, In Deuteronomy 6, uh, again in Joshua 24, God said he promised to give Israel land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build. In other words, most of the cities and the towns and the individual houses and the cattle and the crops and everything else were to remain to be occupied by Israel as they conquered the land. Uh, Joshua 11 said uh, that Joshua defeated 31 kings and possessed their land. And it doesn't specifically say Israel destroyed the cities of all those kings. In fact, the only cities God specifically ordered Israel to destroy completely were the ones around Arad, that's back in Numbers 21, and then Jericho, Hebron, and Hatzor. Ai, or Ai, was destroyed by fire, but as you noted, the people were allowed to take the spoil and cattle from it. So God's purpose in the conquest was to judge the Canaanites and to allow Israel to take over their cities. Apparently, only Jericho, Hebron, and Hatzor were specifically singled out for total destruction. Hebron's where Abraham and the patriarchs were buried, so it's possible the city's destruction is somehow connected to the way they treated the patriarchs. Jericho and Hatzor shared one item in common. Both were connected with the worship of the moon god. And that's the same God who was worshipped in Ur of the Chaldees when God had called Abraham to leave there. So it's possible those two cities were destroyed because of that specific pagan practice, which might otherwise have enticed Israel to return to pagan worship. But otherwise, the other cities were not to be destroyed. In fact, they were to be lived in. Thanks for listening to The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, always intrigued at your questions like this one from Russell. He says in John's gospel, chapter 19, uh, John talks about the Marys that were at the cross, Jesus, mother, Mary, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And Matthew 27, verse 56, tells of Mary, the mother of James and Joses. Are any of these Marys the same person, or were there actually four different Marys that were there at the cross? Yeah, and this is one of those, right? I start with what we know, and we go from there. Uh, We do know uh, that there are two distinct Marys that are clear. Uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is always clear. 
and so is Mary Magdalene. So we know there were at least two Marys, two ladies named Miriam, named after Moses' sister, uh, that were clearly present. Now the confusion comes when we read about those other ones. Uh, the other Mary in Matthew 27 and 28, uh, she's further identified in Mark 15 and, and 16 as Mary, the mother of James, the less, and Joseph. In fact, uh, in 16.1, only Joseph, which by the way is the Hebrew word Yossi or Joseph, hmm. a kind of a short and diminutive form of it, is named. But she must be the same Mary mentioned in chapter 15, where James the Less and Joseph are said to be her children. So we have at least three Marys now. And the count becomes more confusing, and it's that John 19 passage. John identifies three Marys standing together at the crucifixion, Mary the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas. Now, if this is still another Mary, then we would have four Marys connected to the death and burial of Jesus. But it's also possible this Mary, whom John identifies as the sister of Jesus's earthly mother, could also be the same Mary who's the mother of James the Less and Joseph and the wife of Clopas. Now, unfortunately, we don't have any way of knowing from the information we're given uh, if she's the same woman. So there could be three Marys or there could be four Marys, uh, but we're not sure. Alan says, my wife and I are studying Isaiah 9, verse 2, the familiar verse about the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, is telling us about Jesus' first coming. Verse 6, the familiar verse read at Christmas, describes Jesus' birth and divine attributes. But sandwiched in between are verses 4 and 5 about breaking the rod of his oppressor and every battle of the warrior. To what do verses 4 and 5 refer? Yeah, I start by saying I see the entire passage containing elements from the first and second comings of Jesus. You know, his birth as a child, that's his first coming. His ruling on David's throne, that's his second coming. And it's as if the person seeing this is seeing two mountain peaks at a distance. They look like they're together from his perspective, but we know there's a gap of time between those two events. And that helps me understand verses four and five. You know, verses three and seven picture the one who's going to be coming reigning as king over God's promised kingdom. And then in verses 4 and 5, it describes his coming to rescue his people from their enemies who've been oppressing them. And as we look at the ultimate fulfillment, I think the enemies that he has in mind will be the enemies of the world led by the Antichrist and the false prophet and energized by Satan. Uh, Just at the first coming of Jesus, there was an outside power oppressing the people. At his second coming, there's going to be an outside power oppressing Israel, trying to destroy them during the tribulation period. And that's when Jesus will return to vanquish that army, rescue his people, and finally establish his earthly kingdom. Mark says, we're so grateful for your program. Never miss it. We enjoy each section and cannot claim a favorite. Hey, thank you for those kind words. His question, we know that Jesus is holy man and holy God. He fasted in the desert for 40 days. Now, that doesn't seem like something a holy man could do. Can you help me see what I don't understand about this passage or about fasting? Yeah, and it's interesting. Online, you can find a reference to a medical journal that describes an individual who fasted for over a year, though under strict medical conditions and supervision. But from a biblical perspective, and that's where I want to start, uh, in Deuteronomy 9.9, Moses said he fasted 40 days and 40 nights while he was on Mount Sinai with God, receiving the law. And in 1 Kings 19, verse 8, Elijah went 40 days and 40 nights without eating uh, after God first fed him. So there are instances of individuals, in addition to Jesus, who fasted for that length of time. Now, I need to add the one thing at the end. I would not suggest this is something someone should do on their own. You know, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah all had divine enablement. So before you start any fast, I would encourage you to talk with your doctor 
and uh, make sure that you're not doing something that would harm you physically. Going to squeeze in one more question, this one from Ava. Did Jesus cleanse the temple on Sunday or Monday? Mark makes it sound like Monday, and Matthew makes it sound like Sunday. Luke is unclear on it. And by the way, when did the cursing of the fig tree happen? The timeline for all of this seems really confusing. Yeah, the timeline can seem confusing, and part of the reason is the gospel writers weren't trying to present events in a strict chronological order. Instead, they often have a thematic or theological purpose for arranging the details. So having said that, though, I think the key is found in Mark's gospel on this. In Mark 11, verse 12, Mark begins describing what took place the day after the triumphal entry. He says, on the next day. Then he describes the cursing of the fig tree that happened between Bethany and Jerusalem. And then in verse 15, he says, then they came to Jerusalem, and that's when Jesus cleanses the temple. So if the triumphal entry was Sunday, uh, then the cleansing of the temple took place on Monday. And even though Matthew describes the temple cleansing before the cursing of the fig tree, I think he did so to connect Jesus's cleansing of the temple directly to the fig tree in a way that shows why disobedience was going to result in judgment. And our time is gone, but we want to say thank you for your questions. And again, they're welcome anytime at the land and the book at moody.edu. Hey, still more to come on the program. It's Charlie Dyer's devotional. You don't want to miss it. It's next. Olive trees. In the history of the nation of Israel, olive trees have played a prominent role. Fuel for lamps, food for the table, and 101 other practical uses. Yet in the history of the nation of Israel, fewer moments were filled with more intensity than the one that took place in the Mount of Olives. That compelling story straight ahead here on The Land and the Book. First, this Holy Land experience. My name is Beth. I'm from Indianapolis, and this trip has just been incredible. It's hard to say what my favorite spot was, but if I had to pick one right now, I would say um, seeing Peter's house in Capernaum right on uh, the Sea of Galilee, and just to know that Jesus did his ministry in that small area of three towns that are very close to each other was a real insight that he really didn't go far for the main part of his ministry those three years. And um, just to be in the spot where he stayed and uh, did a major part of his ministry was incredible. I'll never read the Bible the same again. To know where each of these places are just adds so much understanding. And I've just learned how important it is to pay attention to the details of the Bible, that our God is a God of detail, and we need to know those details. So it was a real challenge for me to strive to do that more. You know, if you have been to Israel, you have your own Holy Land experience. God deals with us all differently, impresses different things in our hearts, and it's always refreshing to hear these little snapshots here on the broadcast. Well, the Mount of Olives, of course, figures into the story of the life of Christ, figures into the story of prophecy itself. Charlie, a a well-known story, though, you're about to take us to that took place on the Mount of Olives. Yeah, this week's mountaintop experience ought to be familiar since it's on the Mount of Olives, and we've walked over this mountain on several occasions in the past. But none of those journeys match the one we're taking today. 
It's been 40 days since that remarkable Sunday morning when Jesus rose from the dead, just under six weeks. And in that time, Jesus appeared to the women at the tomb, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then the rest of the disciples in the upper room. He appeared again to them in Galilee, and he appeared to more than 500 of his followers at one time. Uh, During that time, Jesus helped them understand what had seemed so confusing before. The scriptures foretold two comings of the Messiah. They had focused so intently on God's promised kingdom for Israel that they had missed the fact that the kingdom was preceded by the cross. The Messiah first had to come as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Only then could the promised blessings of the kingdom become a reality. On this Thursday, 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus and his followers were again on their way up and over the Mount of Olives. Luke says Jesus led them out to the vicinity of Bethany on the eastern slopes of the summit. What words might best describe the emotions surging through this band of brothers? Joy? Excitement? Perhaps a sense of anticipation? Jesus had taught them much over the past 40 days, but they still had one question they needed to ask. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? The cross had to come before the kingdom. We get it. So is now the time when you're going to fulfill those remaining promises for Israel? Is it now time for you to be revealed as the Messiah and to inaugurate your earthly kingdom? Now, we're not told who actually voiced the question, but my vote goes to Peter. He always seemed to be the first to speak up, sometimes to his credit and other times to his folly. But Luke doesn't tell us who actually spoke, and maybe that's because the question was on everyone's mind. Once the first person actually asked the question, it's likely that everyone else nodded in agreement. This was the question they wanted him to answer. Now, just over six weeks earlier, Jesus had told the disciples what the future held for Israel, and he had done that on the very mountain where they were now standing. We call that message the Olivet Discourse, and it's found in Matthew 24 and 25. Maybe the walk back over this hill reminded the disciples of his earlier words and prompted the question. The events Jesus had described leading up to his return as king had now become their obsession. Lord, is this the time when the events you predicted are to begin? Wouldn't you like to attend a prophecy conference if Jesus was the teacher? No more debate and uncertainty. The master himself would be the one telling us exactly what the future holds and when it will happen. But if that was their hope, Jesus burst their bubble. And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Pay careful attention to Jesus' words. He doesn't rebuke the disciples for wanting to know what the future holds. He doesn't tell them that their idea of a future kingdom is wrong. And he doesn't say that the kingdom promised by the Old Testament prophets is to be understood only in a spiritual sense. Had Jesus wanted to redefine the kingdom, to help his followers understand it was a spiritual kingdom in heaven and not a literal kingdom on earth, this was the perfect opportunity. But Jesus doesn't do this. Instead, he tells them that the timing of the events isn't for them to know. Jesus affirms what he had said in his earlier message. He will return as king. But the disciples don't need to know the specific time when the events will take place. 
Rather than focusing on dates and times, Jesus asks them to focus on the message to be proclaimed. And then, after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. As Jesus rose in bodily form to heaven, the disciples watched in wide-eyed amazement. Luke tells us what happened next, and as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them, and they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way you have watched him go into heaven." the sudden appearance of these two angelic messengers served as the exclamation point to Jesus' final words. He is coming back, just as he said. And while we don't know exactly when that's going to happen, we can be confident it is going to take place. Well, it's time to leave this mountaintop and return home. But what truth can we carry with us from these final minutes with Jesus on the Mount of Olives? I'd like to suggest two, and they're opposite sides of the same coin. First, never forget that prophecy is important because it centers on Jesus. The key events of his first coming were announced hundreds of years before they took place. And Jesus rebuked the people of his day for not being able to discern the signs of the times. Jesus also announced he would come again, and he devoted an entire message to that truth. If it was that important to Jesus, can we really say prophecy is not important for us today? But second, let me turn that coin over. Prophecy is important, but we must also be willing to admit there are some things God has chosen not to reveal. And one of those is the exact timing of the events leading up to his coming. The Bible gives us a general outline of future events, including some time markers, But it doesn't give a comprehensive month-by-month roadmap of the future. And those who've tried to read between the lines and fill in all the blanks are substituting their imagination for God's clear revelation. And that's not pleasing to God either. So don't be afraid to study Bible prophecy, but do so in humility and with a willingness to admit our own human limitations. And through it all, keep watching for Jesus. He is coming again. You know, I appreciate that encouragement to look at prophecy with an attitude of humility. I've seen what happens when it's done otherwise, and it isn't pretty. Thanks, Charlie. And we'd encourage you, if you've got a question about prophecy or Scripture or the Middle East itself, to get it answered. Why not uh, send it in by way of an email to thelandandthebook at moody.edu, and then your question may well be featured on a future broadcast. Let me slow that uh, email address down. It's a bit of a mouthful. The Land and the Book at moody.edu the land and the book at moody.edu our website is the place to go to hear today's program again to learn about our guests past programs and more the website the land and the book.org the land and the book.org i'm john gager for our producer dan anderson and our host charlie dyer do come back next week for another edition of the land and the book a production of moody radio a ministry of moody bible institute